Hello, darlings, and welcome to Devil's Food, a true crime kitchen and podcast where we get together every week to talk about some damn good food and some true crime, because what else brings people together other than that, am I right? I'm your Southern Hells Bells host herself, Kayla, so let's get into this week's episode. Okay, y'all, so today we are going to be talking about an older case. Um, It's actually one that I've never really heard of before until I just happened to stumble upon it in my research-minded ways and just kind of found it more or less because I never heard of this case. Uh, So there's a book about it called The Mad Sculptor, and I mean, it has a certain ring to it, Um. It's also been known as the Easter Sunday Murders. I've seen it been it's uh, been referred to as the Beekman Hill Maniac. A couple, I mean, it it has a couple different names, but there's also not a lot on it, to be honest. And I'm really shocked about that. Um, And I love looking into stories that I just can't find a whole lot about because it's it's fascinating because you wouldn't think that a murder or something that, you know, terrible happened, even if it was years ago, you wouldn't think that it would just go with very little written about it, I guess. So, that is the case that we are covering today because I just found it interesting, and when I couldn't find a lot about it, I just thought, I want to find out all the things because you're making it very difficult for me. (laughs) So, that is the case that we are covering today. So, let's get into it. On Easter weekend, March 28, 1937, Joseph Gideon arrived with a bouquet of white lilies at 216 East 50th Street in the Beekman Hill section of New York City. Now, Joseph had been separated from his wife Mary for a few years, but she had invited them to join the rest of the family for Easter dinner. He arrived at the building and he pressed the buzzer, but there was no answer. So he waited in the lobby for his daughter Ethel and her husband Joseph Kudner to arrive. Now when they showed up, they tried ringing the buzzer as well, but they didn't get an answer either. The three of them went looking for the building superintendent and he allowed them entry and then they proceeded upstairs. When they arrived to the fourth floor apartment, they immediately noticed that the front door was open. So Joseph Gideon, the father, went inside to check out the apartment. At first, everything seemed fine, nothing appeared too out of sorts, but no one was in the living room, bathroom, or kitchen. Now, Mary lived with her daughter, but they also rented out two of the bedrooms. So, he went to one tenant's room, and that one was empty, and the next he found 35-year-old Frank Burns, and he had been stabbed to death in his own bed. After that, he discovered his daughter... Joseph's daughter, 20-year-old Veronica, a.k.a. Ronnie, strangled in her bed. Now, the police were immediately called, um, but Joseph never found Mary. No one knew where Mary was. So police quickly arrived, and they began investigating the scene. At some point, someone noticed that Mary's dog, uh, she had a Pekingese named Touchy. It's either Touchy or Tucci. It's T-O-U-C-H-I. Touchy? I'm gonna go with Touchy. So Touchy kept whining under the bed that poor Ronnie was laying on. Um, And Touchy had, you know, he'd been lunging out and he bit one of the detectives and he retreated back under the bed just full-on hungry hungry hippo style, you know, Coming out, biting them ankles, retreat. Come out, bite, retreat. That's that was Touchy's gig. So Touchy did not like the strangers in the. Uh, Touchy did not like strangers. It was very known for that. So Joseph decided to go and get the dog since he was familiar with the dog, um, because Touchy was just not having the strangers being in his house. You know that was his safe safe place, which is kind of ironic. If his name is Touchy, 
but he doesn't like being touched or strangers but you know do you touchy do you so joseph went to get the dog because you know touchy knows him and he gets down on his knees to grab touchy from underneath the bed and when he goes to get the dog he ends up finding the body of his wife 54 year old mary gideon under the bed and she had also been strangled so police are trying to put the pieces together and figure out possible suspects. The first option that they had was Lucy Blaco, and she was a professional model that had rented out the other bedroom because three of the four tenants were dead, and the living one, you know, she may or may not be involved. But she was immediately ruled out because Ethel, Joseph's daughter that was with him, had said that she had been out of town for the holiday weekend. Because keep in mind, it was Easter, so I guess she wanted to be with family. Who knows? So one of the neighbors had reported that she had heard a scream around 1 a.m., which police determined was most likely when Mary had been attacked. The police then said that the killer went into Frank Burns' bedroom. Uh, Frank was an English out-of-work waiter who had recently been let go from his job because he had recently lost most of his hearing, which is absolutely horrendous. I feel like nowadays that would be a lawsuit. Maybe back in those days it wouldn't have been, but today definitely would have been. So the coroner determined that he suffered a fatal blow through the ear canal to his brain. Uh, the weapon was something sharp and thin, maybe like an ice pick, and since he was deaf... The police think that most likely he never heard anybody break into the house. He probably never heard any kind of attacks um, to the women. And he was most likely just completely unaware of what was going on in the apartment and was just unfortunately murdered in his sleep. The police were almost 100% positive that Ronnie was the main target, which we will get to later in the podcast but they did think that ronnie was the main target the other two just happened to be there so one big clue that the police were working off of when trying to figure out suspects was touchy as i said before he didn't like people that he didn't know and many witnesses said that this dog would just bark constantly at strangers but no one reported touchy barking the entire night. Not a single time did any neighbors hear him bark throughout the entire course of the night. So that led police to believe that touchy and the family knew who this person was. Whoever killed them, they were convinced that this was not a stranger. This was somebody that knew them. So the, so there appeared to be no sign of any kind of robbery, no fight, but when police were able to get a hold of Lucy, the other tenant, they asked her if she was able to notice anything that was missing. And the only thing that she noticed was an alarm clock. But she couldn't say if it was stolen or maybe she was packing for a trip and it got misplaced, but Lucy noted that there was a clock missing. Uh... So, since police were thinking that Ronnie was the main target and someone the family and the dog were familiar with, attention quickly turned to Ronnie's little black book that listed all the many acquaintances that she had, for lack of a better, better word. So, let's talk about Veronica Ronnie Gideon for a second. So, Ronnie, she was 20 years old blonde and absolutely beautiful she was known for the time for being a very modern free-spirited young lady for the you know specifically for that time period which kind of meant that she was known for having a wild side her dad was later quoted as saying that ronnie was quote-unquote wild and undisciplined she simply wouldn't listen to a word that i said which I don't know, dear old dad. I feel like that's just how a lot of dads feel about their 20-year-old daughters. But he felt some kind of way about it, apparently. 
So Ronnie was a seasoned model, and her work leaned more toward the scandalous side. Especially, leaned more towards the scandalous side, if you will. Uh, she did a lot of nude, semi-nude lingerie, and she posed for numerous true crime magazines. Which, eh, eh, you know. Titles that she posed for included Pretty But Cheap, Party Girl, and I Am a White Slave. Yeah. Super classy, timeless names that age like milk left in the summer heat, if you ask me, but here we are. In these magazines, she was always very scantily dressed, and she was almost always getting smothered or clubbed or assaulted in some kind of way, which is eerie to say the least considering poor Ronnie's just tragic death. So Ronnie had married at 16 to a man named Robert Flower. But the marriage was soon annulled due to the fact that she was still a minor. She moved back home after the marriage, but her wild tendencies, they were just too much for her father to handle. So he ended up living in his upholstery shop that he owned. So Ronnie was known for having many, many boyfriends and was said to be engaged at the time of her death to a man named Lincoln Hauser. Even though on the night of her murder, she had been out on a date with another man who was a Wall Street messenger named Stephen Butta. It wasn't really butter, but it was butter. But it sounds better when you say butter. So Stephen Butter Jr. on the night of her murder. So maybe the engagement wasn't that serious. You know, who knows? Ronnie's just doing, doing her thing, if you will. So Ronnie had written in her diary numerous times about how she feared her ex-husband because he was known for very aggressive behavior. In the diary, she referred to him as Bobby, not Robert. We'll get to that again. So police immediately checked out her ex-husband, her current relationship, and the date she had been on. Uh, All these men had alibis. They were all cleared. They had nothing to do with any of it. So police looked into Ronnie's little black book. And this book had over 125 men and women listed and police tried their best to look into every single one that could have been a possible lead now keep in mind Ronnie she was a model so a lot of these were a lot of these contacts were photographers artists that she posed for other models she knew and then just a lot of standard contacts like doctors and you know, need to know people that people have in their life. (laughs) They didn't have Google back then. They had to write down every phone number they could possibly need. So when police exhausted her little black book, there was one suspect in mind, and that was her father, Joseph Gideon. He met all the criteria that they were working on. The dog and the family obviously knew him. He didn't agree with Ronnie's lifestyle, and he happened to be the one to find them at the crime scene. So in order for police to arrest Joseph, they needed some sort of proof that connected him to the crime. They searched his upholstery shop, where, remember, he lived, and they didn't find anything that 100% connected him to the murders. But they also didn't find anything that made him look 100% innocent either. They found a collection of some nude photography, if you will. And he also had long, thin upholstery needles that fit the description of the murder weapon used on Frank Burns. Which didn't make him look good. And they also found an unregistered pistol. But because of that unregistered pistol, police were able to make an arrest. So for more than 30 hours... He was interrogated by the police, and he claimed that he had been bowling on the night of the murders. Police somehow, somehow police determined that was not true. Don't know how. 
Um, but his bond was set to $10,000, which today would have been about $160,000. So that was a crazy bond, if you think about it, because he was arrested for not registering a gun. That was it. The police did not have anything connecting him to these crimes. So because of that, his lawyer was able to get his bail or his bond knocked down to $1,000. So when the that got lowered down he was able to get released. So police weren't completely convinced he was the murderer because of a few loose ends that just didn't add up to Joseph being guilty. So first, they found a single gray suede glove that was just way too big for Joseph. There was a bloody fingerprint that did not match. Investigators also found traces of skin and beard stubble under the nails, which meant that these women put up a fight and went for their attacker's face. Joseph did not have a single scratch on his body. On his face, nothing. And lastly, the most strange piece of evidence that police found was two soap carvings. Police believe that the murderer may have carved these bars out of soap to pass the time while he waited for Ronnie to come home. So at the time, this this may sound strange, okay? This may sound strange to find random soap sculptures. And you know what? It is strange. It's just weird, okay? So at the time, soap sculptures were apparently a pretty big deal. Who knew, right? So every year, the makers of Ivory Soap, which were Procter & Gamble, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, you know, pretty big deal, they had a national contest to see who could create the best soap sculptures. These sculptures were not just basic sculptures. You know, I don't know what a basic soap sculpture would be, but they weren't basic. These sculptures were known for being heavily detailed. They were extravagant. They were ornate and original pieces. You know, they were truly a work of art in and of themselves, even if it was just soap. Okay. And the two pieces of soap that were left at the scene fit the description of what this contest would see every single year. So police contacted a man named Henry Byrne. And wouldn't you know it, Henry <laughs> was an expert on the ivory soap carving competitions. Yeah, that's a thing. Okay. I don't know how one gets the title in ivory soap carving expertise. Uh, but somehow he got it. And, you know, go go you, Henry. <laughs> way, to, way to bust through that glass ceiling, Henry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just picturing Henry going to his high school reunion and saying he's a ivory soap carving expert. <laughs> uh, I can't deal with it. Anyway. So Henry was essentially no help. He told investigators he had no clue who did the carvings and said the pieces were very amateur and would not talk to the police anymore. He was done. So later on, he supposedly admitted in Procter and Gamble documents that he knew the carving style and he believed he, you know, it belonged to a previous winner. But he didn't say, he did not want to state the name because he didn't want the bad publicity for the company of the soap to be associated with murders. So, so to this day, no one actually knows if he knew the murderer or if he was just talking out of his ass, to put it bluntly. So, thanks, Henry. Thanks. So, after some digging and connecting the dots, police realized that Bobby, the Bobby that Ronnie referred to in her diary, may not have been Robert, her ex-husband. Bobby could have also been a previous tenant that Mary, her mother, had rented out to. A sculptor named Robert George Irwin. This Bobby happened to stop being a tenant when he went away for mental treatment two years before. Yeah. Also, 
His name is Robert Irwin. We're going to get into his backstory in a second. Please do not get this wackadoo soap person, this wacky doodle dandy. Do not confuse him with sweet, wholesome Robert Irwin, the legendary Steve Irwin's son. Please don't. He is a sweet, wholesome little bean, and we don't want him to have that association. But if you Google Robert Irwin, I can guarantee this wackadoo is not going to pop up. It will be little wholesome Robert Irwin. Now that we've cleared that up. <clears throat> Man, my throat is not having it today. <clears throat> so... Robert George Irwin was born August 5th, 1907 in the Arroyo, I can't say this, but I'm sure someone someone will correct me, I have no doubt. Arroyo, A-R-R-O-Y-O, that word. Seco Park, near Pasadena, California. He was the son of Evangelist... Reverend Benjamin Hardwick. Oh my God. He was the son of evangelist Reverend Benjamin Hardin Irwin and Mary Lee Jordan. His father, uh, Reverend Benjamin Irwin, he was educated as a lawyer, but he had, he was a huge national known figure during the holiness movement. His services were known for being very emotional People there would have these, you know, random physical jerks and shouting and speaking in tongues and holy dancing and laughing. Thousands would attend these meetings and his teachings spread and became very popular in the South and the Midwest. Now, the churches and the organizations that he had learned from and gotten ordained started to oppose his teachings. And because of that, he formed his own organization in 1895 called the Iowa Fire Baptized Holiness Association. That is a mouthful. Benjamin, you could not have thought of a shorter name. Get it together, Benjamin. So as he traveled through America, he would establish associations to promote his message and his teachings. And by the time these associations were organized into one denomination in 19, or sorry, in 1898, uh, he had churches in eight states and two Canadian provinces. Prov provinces. Oh my gosh. So he basically just deemed everything sinful from drinking Coke. And for some reason wearing ties. Were ties controversial in the 1890s? I thought that would have been a very put together look. You know? I can't really say much on Coke. Drinking Coke, because didn't Coke have cocaine in it or something back then? Which back then, wasn't that also not considered bad? I don't know. It seems like old Benjamin just, you know, he had some thoughts on some things. But apparently not some things, because he had a sexual scandal. Uh, rumor has it that some sex workers was his scandal. And his career ended, and he left the church, and he just did his own thing, okay? In 1902, he met Mary Lee Jordan in Canada, and they got married, even though he was already married, but, you know, can't drink Coke, but we can do that, so whatever works for you, old Benny. And a few years later, Robert was born. So Robert's birth name... Robert's birth name, wait until you hear this doozy of a name that I will most definitely butcher. His name was Fenelon, Fenelon Arroyo Sego Irwin. <laughs> I butchered that so bad. Oh my god. So he was named after the river that was close to his birth, which was the park I couldn't pronounce. And one of his father's favorite uh religious people, uh, Francois, Fenelone, Fenelon, oh my gosh, I'm butchering so many names, please don't come for me, I'm trying so hard. <laughs> so he ended up with a super practical, not difficult to say, not difficult to spell name. Not at all. 
so when he was older, he had his name changed to Robert in honor of his philosophical agnostic idol, Robert G. Ingersoll. Uh, which his mother absolutely hated, but, you know, here we are. So, when Robert was about three, his dad left. And when he left, it just left poor Robert and his mother in poverty. Um, I could not find any info on what happened with his mother. She was mentioned very, very briefly. But one article I read said that he was basically an orphan at some point. But I'm not sure exactly what they meant by that. I'm not sure if she passed away. I'm not sure if she also left or left him um, at like an orphanage or something. I don't know. But his mama wasn't really around much, it seems. Uh, there also just isn't a lot of details on his life in general. Just bits and pieces are missing. A lot of bits and pieces. And... The few things that I could find about Robert, it was just very jumpy or snippets of info. So I couldn't really find a whole lot on his entire life, his upbringing, what he was like, nothing like that. I did find a little snippet of info that said that as he got older, a family court judge told him that it, he would be able to learn a trade if he went into a state reform reformatory. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I'm, I should be done, but I'm not. But supposedly he volunteered to go to the state reform. And there he, you know, he was there for about 15 months. And one of the skills that he learned was sculpting. He discovered the work of Laredo Taft, who was one of the leading American sculptors of the late 19th and early 20th century. And Robert just idolized him. And he somehow ended up living with Taft and his family for a little bit. He started working in waxwork studios in Los Angeles, and he carved commercial busts of, like, President Franklin D. Roosevelt and these other huge public figures. Um, he was, it seemed like his uh, artistic sculpting career was really taking off. He was very talented. No one really questioned his talent. Uh, but he was considered to be quote-unquote, brilliant, if erratic, and at times violent. So he consented to be committed to a state mental hospital for treatment, and he was there for about a year. So once Robert was discharged, he moved into New York City, and he found a rooming house that rented out rooms. And it was owned by Mary Gideon, uh, Veronica, a.k.a. Ronnie, and Ethel. So during his stay, Robert became completely infatuated with one of the Gideon daughters, but it wasn't Ronnie. He was head over heels for Ethel. He was obsessed with her, but she did not feel the same way about him. And from everything I read, it didn't appear like she really gave him the time of day. She wasn't interested in him in any way at all. I tried to find some info about Ethel, like her personality, her appearance, any kind of description at all. Nothing. Nothing. Not even really much from Robert. Um, all details and descriptions were really about Ronnie, which is weird. He did write in his diary one time. He said, God, how I adore Ethel. Perfection. That's what she absolute. That's what she is. Absolute perfection. Uh, and that's really all that was said <laughs> about Ethel. Uh, he had no interest in her younger sister Ronnie. He described her as a nice little brainless, blue-eyed blonde, a beautiful, fluffy thing. Yeah. So that's nice. But. Ronnie saw Irwin as crazy. <laughs> she said he was out of his head, and she confided in her own diary that she planned to save Ethel from this mad artist, and he will never marry Ethel, not if Ronnie had anything to do with it. Which, you know, that's great. So, Robert had some issues at the Gideon's apartment. You know, not the, clearly the obsession wasn't enough. We had to take it a step 
further, okay? So Robert at one point took a razor to his penis. You heard that right. Took a razor to his penis in the Gideon's bathroom. Yeah, let that sink in. Um, and shocker, after that, he was committed to the Rockland State Hospital in Orangeburg, New York. Thank God. Where he received further treatment for his mental illnesses. <sighs> yeah. He said he had this fascination with self-castration because he wanted to be free from his sexual instinct. Yeah. I, Robert, you know, I'm not one to judge. You know, I just feel, you know, I feel like there are other ways, you know, no judgment, but a um, little bit. Okay. Yeah. So while he was at treatment this time, he made a statue of himself as a billy goat with breast. Robert, 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 honey. <sighs> yeah, not doing yourself many favors here, Robert. So during this time, his mental illnesses became progressively worse. You, I mean, you don't say. Erwin became convinced that if he could get the obsessive thoughts of, Eth of Ethel out of his head, that he could live on a spiritually higher plane and finally realize his true artistic potential. Yeah. So he was there for about two years, <laughs> and he was released in September 1936. He enrolled as a student at the Theological School of St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York. He was there before, for about six months before he was expelled March 18, 1937 for, quote-unquote, instability. I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Mental illness is really not funny. It really isn't. But my God, Robert. Ugh. It's not funny, and I'm not laughing at him. It's just some of this is absolutely ridiculous. It really is. A, a professor that was there even said about him, quote-unquote, that boy's crazy. End quote. Ugh, Lord. He was expelled 10 days before Easter. Give you a little bit of a timeline of where we're at. So he went back to New York, New York City. He rented out a room for a single day. This room was several blocks away from the Gideon house. The landlady that rented him said that he was incoherent and he wore clothes from the Rockland Hospital and he carried a satchel with religious books and a piece of art, which was a bust of actress Marlene... Dietrich. I'm, I feel like I know how to say her name. D-I-E-T-R-I-C-H. Marlene Dietrich. Dietrich. Sorry, Marlene. That he had been working on. So, he was carrying that with him. So, that was a light load. Uh, he had considered drowning himself in the East River. Uh, decided not to. So, that's, you know. He decided not to do that. And he went... He decided that he was going to pay a little visit to the Gideon house. It wasn't really stated what time he arrived at the Gideon home. Um, but his target when he went there was Ethel. At first, he was determined he was going to try to, for lack of a better word, try to emasculate himself again. Um, trying that method again, apparently. Then his, his mind just turned into he was going to just kill Ethel. So that's why he wanted to go. Uh, when he couldn't emasculate himself to rid him of, you know, that quote-unquote sexual instinct again, he just decided, you know, we're just going to get rid of Ethel. Ethel, it, Ethel is clearly the problem, you know. Nothing else, just Ethel. Um... So, during a later confession, he said he had intended to cut off Ethel's head and make a death mask. And that was his plan. 
If I could give Robert any piece of advice, um, it would be to not cut anything off of your body or someone else's. And I feel like that's good advice for all of us to live by, you know? I think it's good, you know, good rule of thumb. So at first when he got there, no one was home. Uh, Mrs. Gideon finally arrived, and she asked Irwin to take the dog for a walk, which he gladly did. Upon returning from the walk, Mrs. Gideon was friendly, and they talked for a while. Um, I don't really know if Mary, Mary Gideon, I don't really know if she was just trying to appease him. Because clearly there's a history, you know? So I don't know if she's just trying to appease him, you know, get her free dog walk out of the way so she doesn't have to do it um but she didn't know him so maybe she was just trying to catch up and be friendly who knows we don't i don't know mary's i don't know mary's life okay we don't know her intention um but she did talk to him for a while robert waited and waited and waited for ethel to get home and that's when he just starts asking mary about ethel and he did not like what she had to say So, she basically said that Ethel wasn't going to come home that night or any other night. Ethel had gotten married and she had moved out since Robert left. The news of her marriage did not sit well with Robert. And Mary told him that he needed to move on from Ethel and that she wanted him to leave. He did not leave and the two began to argue. He was... Quoted as saying that the room turned blue with death. And I got her throat in my hands. Poor Mary. He grabbed her by the throat and she fought him every step of the way. But unfortunately he did end up strangling her to death. He put her lifeless body under the bed. He then went to the kitchen and made himself something to eat. Classy. And he worked on soap sculptures while he waited for Ronnie to come home. So around 3 a.m., Ronnie came home and went straight to the bathroom to clean her face and wash her stockings and put her curlers in. You know, get ready for bed. She was completely unaware that her mother was in the apartment dead under her bed. And Robert was waiting for her. She came from the bathroom And he hit her over the head with a blackjack that he had made out of a towel and bars of soap. I don't know what his deal is with soap. I don't know. Um, It did not work. And Ronnie called him by name. Which did not sit well with him. He grabbed her by the throat and took her to the bedroom and held her against the bed. where Where her mother's body was under And held her there for about an hour until he realized that Ronnie was dead. He said that he hated to harm anything beautiful. Blue death seemed to issue from her. There wasn't anything I could do. Couldn't anyone understand that. That's what he said. Okay. You know. You know, Robert, I do feel like you had other uh, other options, but you know. So at this point, Robert felt like he had no choice but to kill the tenant that was staying at the house. He was thinking he could not leave any witnesses behind, but he was unaware that Frank Burns. He was unaware that Frank Burns was deaf, and he had no idea what was going on. So he walked into the bedroom of Frank and stabbed him 11 times with the ice pick that he had brought to kill Ethel with. He calmly washed up and then desperately searched the apartment for things that to remind him of Ethel. All he could find was that alarm clock that the other tenant reported missing and he took a few pictures. And after that, he fled by train and he ended up in Cleveland. So April 7th, 1937, about 10 days after the murder, the police announced that they knew who the killer was, Robert Irwin. He was announced to papers nationwide and the largest manhunt since the Lindbergh baby kidnapping five years earlier happened. Police spread the word that they now believe that the 29-year-old artist was committing these crimes. His name 
as well as Ronnie's scandalous pictures were posted everywhere in newspapers, um, and the media was just going absolutely wild with the stories. With the story. So even though Ronnie's pictures had nothing to do with the case, and Ronnie was not the object of his affections, she was more or less just wrong place, wrong time, that didn't matter because at the end of the day, sex and murder and scandals sell papers. And she had plenty of pictures and material for them to work with, basically, which is so unfortunate, but it's true. that It's just what they did at the time. Well, let's be honest, they would do that now. <laughs> so, in June of 1937, a pantry maid at the Cleveland Statler Hotel was reading a pulp magazine and saw a picture of Robert Irwin and noticed he had a very strong resemblance to a bar boy that had been hired a couple months before named Bob Murray. She questioned Bob if she knew anything about Robert Irwin, which he denied, but once she walked away, he he dipped. He yeeted. He cleaned out his locker and he disappeared. The sighting of him sparked even more attention, and he went back on the run where he ended up in Chicago. So the Chicago Tribune received a phone call from someone claiming to be Robert Irwin, and this person was offering to surrender, but for a price. The Chicago Tribune figured it was a prank call, and they did nothing with it. The Chicago Herald Examiner received a very similar call, but they took it seriously and decided to leap on the opportunity. They made an arrangement for Robert to be paid $5,000 for an exclusive story and his surrender. I don't really understand why he made this offer to surrender for a price tag, if I'm being honest. Like, sir, you're going to go to jail and you kill people, so you're going away for a very, very long time. What is 5K going to do you? And like, Are you going on a shopping spree? A last minute vacation? What's the plan? You know? I, d I don't... <laughs> I don't quite understand the logic of it. If I'm being completely honest, I just don't. But you know, it worked because he got... He turned himself in. So it worked. I just don't understand the logic. So the editor, John Deanhart, and reporters G. Duncan and Austin O'Malley kept Robert hidden at the Morrison Hotel in Chicago and shielded him from the police while authorities were still on the manhunt. They worked on the terms of the confession of the murders and the paper was able to get an exclusive before anybody else. Can you imagine the editor and the reporters that were doing that? They had to have been on cloud nine. They probably thought that was the move of their career. Because, you know, reporters, you know, they want that exclusive. You know? I, whew, I bet they were tickled pink. So once his confession was done, their deal was met. The Hearst companies flew Robert back to New York City, where he was then turned over to the police and gave his confession to the murderers. Famous criminal defense attorney Samuel Leibowitz was appointed to be Robert's lawyer on the case. And Leibowitz had been, he worked on big cases for the time period. He represented the Scottsboro Boys in Alabama. Haven't heard of that case, but I want to look into it now if it was mentioned. Uh, he was also reported to have saved 123 murder defendants from the death penalty. So... Robert definitely wanted him on his side because I have a feeling that's what he was facing. So in the published confession, in the published confession, he had stated he had only intended to kill Ethel. He said, quote, I wanted to kill Ethel, Ronnie's sister, because she was the dearest object in the world to me. I loved her and hated her. I did not wish to kill anybody else. The fact that I killed three others was accidental. I accidentally borrowed three lives. It is my theory that nothing is lost. That is why I say I only borrowed three lives. I did not destroy them. Sir. You don't, you don't borrow lives. You don't borrow what you can't return. That's what borrowing is. Idiot. So in his confession to the police, he compared himself to a radio. 
he said, Bob Irwin is nothing. I'm only a receiving set, an extremely imperfect one, which can indistinctively tune in the divine mind. You have heard a radio that isn't working well. You turn the dials and you get a squawking. Only once in a while can we get a pure, clear music. My whole idea in life was to perfect myself so the receiving set could always get the divine music at its best. I feel like I really stumbled over that quote, but I also have a really hard time processing BS. So that might be why. So hours after he was taken into custody, he was indicted indicted for three counts of first-degree murder. The initial view of him from the investigators was that he was insane. But New York said that they found him to be normal at the times of the murders and claimed that he knew the nature and quality of his acts. District Attorney William Dodge announced that the state would seek the death penalty. Now, I don't really understand their logic on this. Um, said that they thought he was normal at the times of the murders. Homeboy just said he thought he was borrowing a life. Like a cup of sugar. (laughs) That's not how it works, okay? So anyway, they're going after the death penalty. The presiding judge postponed trial to await the findings of a three-member commission to evaluate Robert's sanity. They determined he was sane, and during this time, a newly appointed district attorney, Thomas Dewey, resumed prosecution. As trial approached, Robert was at the Tombs Warden Detention Center, where Warden William where Warden William Adams said, Irwin certainly isn't crazy now. He is as normal as any man in prison. <laughs> uh, I feel like that's... You know, great, great comparison, you know, which I feel like that statement being made in the 30s, grain of salt, you know, grain of salt. So Leibowitz replied with Irwin, Irwin was, is, and will be hopelessly insane. He's crazy as a bed bug. I don't know if bed bugs are crazy, but Leibowitz you know, he's, he's thinking he is. So the publicity for this trial was massive. One news account report was set, quoted as saying that not since the Harry K. Thal murder trial has a case excited wider interest. I don't know what that means. But apparently it's a big deal. Um, I'm also going to look at the Harry K. Thal murder trial because apparently that was a big deal. So maybe a future episode. Maybe. We'll look into that. So, the jury was selected, and Leibowitz arranged for a plea deal. He pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder in exchange for a life sentence, and he wanted a pair of trousers that he had left. (laughs) This is so silly. I have to reread this because I feel like I'm reading it wrong because it's so foolish. So Leibowitz arranged for a plea deal where Robert would plead guilty to two counts of second-degree murder in exchange for a life sentence. Robert also wanted the pair of trousers that he had left in a suitcase at the Grand Central Station during his runaway from the crimes. (laughs) He wanted them returned. Which, you know, Robert, you know, I know the struggle of finding a good pair of pants. And when you find them, you want to hold on to them. But, you know, time and place to ask. You know, I don't feel like this was it, you know. But I could not find if the poor fella ever got his britches back. I don't know if he did or not. Uh, But he did avoid the death penalty. And Judge James Wallace sentenced him to 139 years of prison. So the breakdown of that was he got 99 years to life for the murder of... Frank Burns, 20 years to life for Mary Gideon, 20 years to life for Veronica Gideon. Which I don't understand why the Gideon murders got so much less time than the Burns murder. 
I guess it doesn't matter because he was never he's never going to get out of prison. It just didn't really make sense to me, that breakdown of it. So Robert was sent to Sing Sing Prison for a psychological evaluation where the psychiatrist diagnosed him with schizophrenia. And one of them even said he was very definitely insane. Thank you for stating the obvious. Um, after 38 years of being in state prisons for the criminally insane, he died in 1975 from cancer. He was only 67 years old. So Robert was buried on the grounds of Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane in Fishkill, New York. This case sparked some interesting conversations, I think. So first, people were not happy about how newspapers exploited the crimes with these crazy sensational headlines and the racy pictures of Ronnie. And there was also controversy when people learned about the paid confession that nearly sent a man to the electric chair just so the newspaper could have an exclusive story. Which, you know, if he would have got the death penalty, eh. But it was kind of, when you put it like that, it does sound like, oh, the, the newspaper paid him to do it. And, eh, it's not great. It doesn't make him look great. I'm sure worse things have probably been happened. Have probably been happened. <laughs> I'm sure worse things have probably happened in the newspaper reporting media realm. Um, but yeah, people weren't happy about that when that came to light. In the aftermath of the trial, the New York Daily News publisher, Joseph Metal or Medial, not really sure, Patterson responded to the criticism saying that murder sells papers, books, and plays because we are all fascinated by murder. Yeah. I mean, he's not wrong. Look at what we're listening to right now. Just saying. Not much has changed. He defended the paper's choice of giving the trial more attention than, at the time, President Roosevelt's, Roosevelt's failed attempt to pack the U.S. Supreme Court. He defended this choice by saying, basically, that if people cared about the Supreme Court, um... More so than the Gideon murders, they would put that in the newspaper, but he didn't think people were more interested in that. And to be honest, he's probably not wrong. Because, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm recording a true crime podcast, not talking about the news, not talking about the Supreme Court. It's a sad but true fact that people have been fascinated by these things for a long time. Since the dawn of time, probably. People will buy scandal over facts every day because for them, it's gossip, it's entertaining, it's something to talk about. It doesn't make it right, but it's not ever going to stop either. I don't think it ever will. The case focused attention on New York's systematic exclusion of women from juries of first-degree murder cases. The day before the initial trial date, the process for the selection of jurors began with the announcement by the acting commissioner of jurors. It was said that none of the 841 names in the drum was a woman, despite the enactment of the statute allowing women to serve as jurors. One day later, the court began to put women on the jury list for first-degree murder trials. Which is pretty cool. The case also inspired the 1967 novel, Killing Time by Thomas Berger. So whatever happened to the Gideon house? Uh, after the murders, no one was willing to rent the apartments where the victims lived. Can't blame them. Uh, the superintendent was finally able to lease the apartment to a hotel worker named Sidney Pilly. And it did not bother Sidney. Uh, it didn't bother him to live there because he wasn't superstitious. However, on August 1st, 1940, a little over three years after the murders, the police arrived at the apartment to arrest Sidney for pornography charges. As he was leaving with the police, he said he forgot to turn off his gas stove. He went back to the kitchen and proceeded to jump out of the window to his death, and the building was later torn down and replaced by a six-story building in 1960. Yeah. So that's that. 
So that was the tale of the Mad Sculptor, along with the other names it was called. Um, I don't really think there's much debate for this story. I like conversations to be had, you know? I really do. I like conversations to be had of cases. Um, I don't really think this is a debate. Maybe it is. Personally, I think it's more of a what the heck was your reaction? What's your thoughts? Obviously, I think there's a lot of mental illness factors that go along with this case. And it was also really hard to find any information on this case. So it's so hard to say. But in my mind, it's hard to wrap my brain around the fact that someone who clearly needed treatment and was deranged, he just kept getting released from mental hospitals. And clearly leaving and getting discharged without all the help he really needed, you know? But at the same time, it was a completely different time period. He was in state hospitals, in those facilities. They have a lot of people that also need help. So I'm sure a lot of people, especially during that time period, fell through the cracks. And a lot of people were probably in and out just to make room for the next people. Which is really sad. But you know, that's really sad. Um, but th that's just my thoughts on it at the moment. So let me know what you think. So again, let me know your thoughts on this. I will be posting it on Instagram at Devil's Food True Crime. Um, so yeah, now for something a little more lighthearted. The other reason why we come to this podcast every week, I hope. I know we're still pretty new, <laughs> but I hope they um hope you like it. So one of the other things we're gonna be sticking with is food. So for today's recipe, I thought it would be fun to do an Easter Sunday meal. But an easier take on that, um, something that's easier and you don't have to wait for Easter to do it. So, this week I made a sheet pan Easter dinner, complete with ham, green beans, and potatoes. The video of that recipe will be posted on YouTube as well as Instagram. If you would like to make those recipes, please tag the Devil's Food Instagram so I can see. And let's come up with a hashtag. So for now, let's do Devil's Food Podcast until we can think of something more creative. Also, follow on Instagram to post your thoughts on today's case. I also would really love to get to the point of the podcast where we really, we actually have a community and we can join forces and help a good cause. And I'd like to find a charity or an organization that some way relates to the case whenever possible. And, or, just a good <clears throat> or just a good cause in general. I'll be posting links in the episode description or show notes and also on Instagram. So for this week's episode, I'll be sharing a link for the National Alliance for Mental Illness, also known as NAMI or NAMI and AMI. So they work to educate, advocate, and listen and lead to improve the lives of people with mental illness and their loved ones. So I will be posting a link to that organization in the show no show notes for you to check them out. So thank you guys so much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And I hope you come back next week for a little more Southern hospitality, true crime, and good food. I love y'all. I'll see you next time. So he waited in the lobby. My dog is drinking water. Ruby, that's very rude of you. Thank you. When they showed up, they tried ringing the buzzer as well. 
Ruby. Sassy. How many times can I be interrupted by Ruby during this recording of this podcast? I think if Ruby has a say in it, it will be a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ruby? Enough. Hi, Ruby. Are you thirsty? <laughs> when, when Robert was about three, his dad left, and when he left, it basically just left his mother and him in complete prop. <coughs> Ruby, stop licking yourself. But you know, Robert... <laughs> 